Welcome to the Movers Mindset Podcast, where I interview movement enthusiasts to find out who they are, what they do, and why they do it. Today, Rafe Kelly dives deep into his thoughts about the hero's journey and its relevance to parkour. He shares his own journey and research into parkour and movement, finding meaning in practicing, and why he trains in nature. Rafe discusses parkour's power as a transformative practice, the spirit behind it, and what makes it unique. But first, if you're interested in discussing your favorite podcast episode, or you want to learn more about the guests and other athletes, consider joining the Movers Mindset community. Go to community.moversmindset.com and click on Start Here to learn more. Hello, I'm Craig Constantine. And I'm Rafe Kelly. Rafe Kelly is a coach, mover, researcher, and podcaster. He has studied many movement practices, including various forms of martial arts, parkour, and gymnastics, as well as a deep and abiding interest in human nature and evolution, all of which eventually led to Rafe founding Evolve Move Play. Rafe helps students harness the power of movement practice for self-transformation through intensive workshops, two-day seminars, local classes, and podcasts. Welcome, Rafe. Glad to be here. I'm, I'm curious to talk about the things that, that brought you into interest to, to, uh, to speak with me. Like, what is it that, that you're interested in about my work that makes you want to have a conversation with me? So I think that you, um, and perhaps it's probably because you're older than like, say the average person who's really into parkour, but I think you have a unique viewpoint because you have taken the time to, I'm going to say unplug, taken the time to unplug from practicing like in the culture and then gone off and continued your physical practice. And also, in addition to all that, we've also done a bunch of digging into the research. So there aren't many people, new sentence, who have gone out and like looked up Benedict's stuff or like looked at what are the parasympathetic research that goes like, so there aren't many people who have done that. So I'm interested in, does that answer your question or do you want more? Uh, Sure, yeah. Who's Benedict? Oh, I thought Benedict (laughs) was the guy who did the... Uh, neuro para the neuropsychology research. Oh, Bernstein. Bernstein. Sorry, <laughs> I did not. I have not read Bernedict, Benedict or Bernstein. <laughs> Bernedict. Bernedict. I have not read that. that stuff. Okay. But I think when I've listened, so I've been listening to your podcast in, oh, in audio. I haven't watched the, the videos, and I find that your lines of questioning with your guests. Um, so I'm, I'm a podcast nerd yeah, yeah. and when I listen to podcasts and I hear people ask questions and I go, what do you, what, don't ask them that question. You know, you, you seem to be asking the questions that I'm like, yeah, that's, that's a good question. I would like to know the answer to that. And yeah. I, I mean, that happens over and over and over. And then I go, I need to go talk to that person. So I haven't like, for example, I haven't been to any of your workshops or classes mm-hmm. cause we're on the opposite coast. Yeah. Um, but I've found that like your, your, I don't know about your trains of thought, but the lines of questioning that you're pursuing, I'm finding really interesting. So I thought it would be a great opportunity to like yeah, go yeah. straight to the source no pun intended <laughs> <laughs> return to the source return to the source. so does that answer your question i don't want to sure make no, sure that's that great. yeah oh. yeah do you have other questions because you said you wanted to ask uh, me a what was questions. the other question um i think that was the main one yeah okay because it's always tricky to get started in interviews as you know yeah, yeah. so i was going to ask about you you mentioned the, about people's heroic journey mm-hmm. and i think that's really critical that I'm going to, I'm going to be ageist and say people of a certain age need to first realize that they are in fact on a journey and that they are in fact the potential hero. I mean, they could wind up, that could go badly and they don't make it on that journey. 
But once people discover that they're on that journey, what do you think it is about parkour? Let's just start here. What do you think it is about parkour that tends to make people like wind up being the hero? Like it seems to me that it works really well at getting people on the correct hero path. Yeah. I mean, I think that fundamentally what parkour does is it provides a, a a mini hero's journey that can be approached over and over again in your training sessions. Right. Um, I'm sure you're probably familiar, perhaps the audience is familiar with the idea of breaking the jump, Mm -hmm. right? So if we think about the structure of breaking the jump, um, this is taught to me by Stefan Bougrou. So first we, we feel the call of the jump, right? Second, we assess the jump, right? And then we feel the fear, right? So third is, is experiencing fear. If it's a real jump for you, you're going to experience fear. Fourth, we have to find a way to overcome the fear. We have to apply some set of tools that allows us to get past that fear. And then we get to make a decision. And then we commit and we jump, right? right. And we can actually view that as it's basically like a mini version of the hero's journey because right. the, the call of the jump is the call to adventure, right? Mm-hmm. You're in your mundane life and then yep. something happens happens and, and arises and says you have to confront something, right? And then, you know, what do you do then? You orient to it. You're like, what is going on? What is this new challenge that's occurring in my life? Um, and then if it's a real challenge, it's going to come with negative sacrifice, emotions. Right? It's going to come with sacrifice. So in, you know, in the, in the terminology of the hero's journey, that's the descent into the underworld. Mm-hmm. Right? And then as when you are in the underworld, you have to find your tools, find your resources that allow you to step forward and confront what needs to be confronted, confront the dragon that you have to confront to become the person that you want to become, to get back to the world that you want to live in. And what we're doing in parkour, and it's not just parkour, um, but we're doing in any of these sports where we can, we can look at a challenge and feel the call and, and go through this process is we're practicing that we're practicing those skill sets. And we are sort of stepping out of mundane life in a very targeted way to cultivate ourselves. And, we can think of that cultivation as just a cultivation of physical skills. And for some of us it is, or at least mostly it is maybe. But I think that, I think that for everyone there's really, there's always a psycho-emotional element to practice. It's right. impossible to get around. So then the question is, well, why continue doing this stuff? Right. Right? What, what is it for? What is it for? That's the real question, I think. Right. And, uh, and so I think that the, the hero's journey is a nice way of looking at that. And, so I, I would agree with you that the physicality part of it is, I don't want to say unimportant, but it's the, it's the, usually the first piece and it's really not the main nut. The main nut is the psychological part of it, the, even the social part of it. And I'm just thinking, I personally don't think that parkour is absolutely perfect because it's missing. Well, it, it doesn't necessarily bring any social aspect to it. Sure. I mean, a lot of people tend to wind up having a community of all people that, yeah. oh, we all love parkour, so yeah, let's go to the movies or, or whatever your social preference is. Um, but parkour in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be a an ensemble. And I think that's one like mark against it. And I think your um, the way that you talk about roughhousing and um, play in like a martial type of play. We're not killing each other, but like you're going to get whacked on the ground. It's going to take you a second. It's going to take you a second to catch your breath. The, that type of play, I think, is an important piece of it. And there are people in parkour who do that. But I'm just wondering if you see any way for, like, can parkour as it exists now, can it really 
be the solution to like everybody's hero journey or are there going to be people who are going to have to, you know, you need to take a time out and do martial arts. You're going to need to go and, you know, do a retreat in the woods. Like, do you think, do you think parkour is complete? Is what I'm basically I don't asking. think parkour as it's currently practiced is complete. Most common. Um, you know, that's what EMP is. It's an attempt to take what I thought was the extraordinary insight and power of parkour as a kind of like base code and expand it to something that I felt was, I don't want to use the word complete exactly, but sufficient, let's say, because um, the scope of practices that could be transformative for people is infinite, Mm. right? So no one method is ever going to cover all of them. And that's probably a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, we were were so often with many guests, we're talking at length before we start recording and you had brought up the, it's a really good example of chess, which is enormously huge problem space. And that's why people like to play chess, because as you know, that it's an enormous space that the human across the table isn't going to like programmatically solve you. You're forced to interact with it. And it feels like you're, what you've been doing with, um, and just, you said EMP has evolved, you know, everybody, it was, Sorry, saying, evolve, no, 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 play. you can call yeah, it EMP. I'm yeah. just saying it's evolved, move, play in case you don't yeah. know what acronym we just mm-hmm. dropped. The, what you've added or the, that piece that you brought in is I think to like blow open the, the space so parkour has vaults and if you're doing it in trees, it's like, okay, this just went from being learning vaults to going, you know, crazy in those spaces. <laughs> so I, I kind of cut you off, but I, I think, I think I don't see many people. I'm, I'm always hesitant to be like, I don't see anyone else, but I don't think I can think of anyone else that has done that type of addition to parkour and like tried to say, no, I, I really think that it needs this other piece. Yeah. Where did you get that? Like, what, what prompted you to do that? Because I, I I know some of the story, like sure, sure, sure. but like to unpack the story, what what prompted you to create events where you're combining parkour with the open spaces and the roughhousing? And yeah, so it's hard to say in some ways because I feel like it, it it's sort of emergent from my life and my character and and, and what I've experienced. I, I ended up. You know, I just happened to have grown up on the end of a dirt road in a kind of hippie community. I had some really formative experiences around rough and tumble play and how that helped me overcome learning disabilities. I started martial arts very young. Um, and I had this really deep interest in human nature that started at a very young age. So I, part of my overcoming my learning disabilities when I was in my, uh, like eight years old was falling in love with epic literature, starting with the Lord of the Rings and then the Iliad and the Odyssey, and then the Norse mythology, and then lots of other fantasy novels. And um, that actually led me to starting an interest in first history. Like I read, you know, the lives of all the Caesars and, Mm. and all that stuff, and then anthropology. And so by the time I was 13 years old, I had read every anthropology book in my local library. And then I found a, a mentor who was a, a professional anthropologist who worked in local government who lent me his library. And I read something like 30 ethnographic monographs before I went to community college at 16 years old. So I had this really deep interest in, in being a hero. That was part of it. And also in understanding what, what was at the base of human nature, right? And when I saw parkour, well, I'd been doing gymnastics for a long time and gymnastics was really inspirational to me and it was really fun to practice, but parkour felt like, um, it was the thing underneath gymnastics More true. Maybe. Yeah. It was the, it was the, it was the, it resonated on a a frequency closer to the origin of, of human movement. Mm. And it, 
and all that anthropological literature that I was reading, there, there were stories in there about kids climbing trees and bending them over and being thrown off of them and swinging around on vines and doing flips off of them. And, you know, there's a, one of my favorite stories I always tell on this podcast is I believe it's the Tui tribe in Northern Australia. They live in an extremely arid environment. And they'll be walking through these deserts where there's just nothing. It's just flat ground for miles and miles and miles. And they'll see a big rock in the desert or a big dead fallen tree or something. And the children will just run ahead of the group as soon as they see it and just start climbing up it and flipping off of it. Hmm. So like there's this fundamental drive in human beings and parkour seemed to reflect that, but it, it was, it was a partial reflection of the kind of most fundamental primal forms of human play. It was one aspect, not the whole thing. And so I was curious in the, about the idea of what would it be to train a human being, um, to train a human being to be the best version of a human being, right? So if we look at an evolutionary and like cross-cultural lens, what are the movements that are most nourishing and most meaningful to human beings? And the other lens that I took into that was all that heroic literature, right? If you read, um, if you read like the Irish mythology, you know, the, the heroes are represented not only as being great at fighting, but they also have to be able to run and jump and climb. So in the, there's a, there's a mythological cycle in the Irish mythology called the Finian cycle. Uh, and it's about this group of warriors called the Fianna. In order to enter the Fianna, you had to be able to run through the woods barefoot and pass under a log as low as your knee and over a log as high as your chin um, and pluck a thorn from your foot um, without uh, breaking, breaking stride, stride and without your uh, without a hair coming out of your braids, <laughs> right? And so that's that was parkour, right? And then of course they also had warrior stuff like that had to be buried to their waist and with just a, a wand of hazel um, defend themselves from seven men casting spears at them. Um, and and then the Irish heroes will have these these stories of uh, of uh, of of the feats they, they do feats, right? So there's a story where Dermot, uh, Oduvna, who's one of the Fianna, he has, uh, he's run away with the, the perspective, the fiance of the King of the, of the Fianna Finn. And, and so now the Finn has sent out these armies to catch him. So he dresses himself up as somebody else. And he goes out to, to see this army of people. And the army's like, have you seen Dermot Oduvna? And he's like, Oh, I just saw him yesterday. That dude's like the greatest warrior ever. You don't want to mess with that guy. Like he did this feat. You just couldn't believe this feat. And they're like, what, what did he do? We can do anything this guy did. And he's like, so he was like, he ran up a spear and stood on top of it. And so he runs up the spear and stands on top of the spear. And then like, 50,000 of their soldiers run up a spear and impale themselves. Right. Right? <laughs> and then, you know, and then the next day he comes back and they're like, Oh, have you seen Dermot? He's like, yeah, I, I just saw him. He, you know, he, he rode a barrel down a rocky cliff <laughs> and, uh, and then everyone tries to fa follow suit. Right. <laughs> or, you know, he, he had two swords on two people's shoulders and he jumped up and landed in between them <laughs> and everyone just kills themselves like that. So he kills almost their entire army by having them try to do parkour tricks with him. <laughs> And then, then he kills the rest of them. Um, <laughs> and so the, the Irish mythology is like, uh, it's like Marvel movies. It's ridiculous, right? But then you can read like Norse mythology and uh, particularly like the, the Norse sagas. And there's, it's very realistic. It's like, you know, 
the one guy, <laughs> you know, he waited behind him. He waited for the guy behind a shed. When right. he came out, he hit him on the top yeah. of the head with a, with a sword and he fell down dead right. at the end. Right. Like, <laughs> um, it's that level of realistic, but there are these moments also where like, you know, um, in the Null saga, which is one of the best sagas, in my opinion, one of my favorites, um, there's a scene where the character Scarpedon, uh, jumps over, uh, jumps over a, a creek and lands on a patch of ice and slides across the ice and hacks the top of somebody's head off with an ax while he's doing so. And this mm-hmm. is this great feat, like it makes him a legendary warrior. So the, the idea that, that we needed this balance of skills, right? That we needed all these things was also really in this, in this, uh, heroic literature. So that was all interesting to me. And I, I really actually started practicing incorporating these elements into my practice. I was doing gymnastics still. And then I, I started training some CrossFit. Um, I was training martial arts and I was training parkour back in 2006. And then I was exposed to the ideas of a method, uh, natural and George Hebert and started kind of practicing elements along that and structuring like that and training primarily in nature. So, I mean, I had only been doing parkour for like a year when I started to put this stuff mm. together. And it, it's always been really interesting to me, the idea of putting them all together. You say normal parkour. And I guess uh, like I wanted, I wanted to highlight the idea that like what we do in Evolve Move Play is in many ways a, um, I feel like it's a articulation or a more sophisticated, um, iteration on the original ideas of parkour that the parkour that is popular on YouTube is like a, um, it's a very small stream of, from the origin of what this thing was. And it's, it's extremely, it's become extremely popular widely, but it's very diluted. And, you know, so you say, well, why would, why would you, you know, what brought you to combine rough and tumble play with parkour? But that was in the beginning, right? right? Like if you watch videos, you can find videos of, of, uh, of Stefan Vigru and David Bell practicing Wing Chun sticking hands drills right. and then jumping around in the woods together. Right? right. Um, you know, the, if you've read Julie Angel's book, which I know you have, you know, they, <laughs> they were punching each other in the stomach right. and seeing who could handle it. Right? That was part of it. Like, uh, one of the, one of the stories, right. If we're on the subject of narratives that had a huge impact on me was fight club. And I think that in many ways, um, well, when I was 19, I watched Fight Club and it was like, this describes what's, what I'm feeling, right? What I'm feeling about the meaninglessness of life, right? When they sit across the table in that bar and Tyler Durden says, you know, we work in jobs that we hate to make money, uh, to buy things that we don't need to impress people we don't like, right? That was the, the description of the modern condition. And, you know, and I, you know, I'd been doing martial arts my whole life and I was like, yeah, this, this, this makes sense. And then I started training parkour and I came back to fight club a few years later and it was like, ah, this is parkour is like a positive answer to the negative, to the negative answer that, right. The same question that fight club had, but in the end fight club descended into this totalitarian, (laughs) right. Right. Um, thing that was not, that didn't really serve the promise that it had had. Yeah. But if we look at the origins of, of, of parkour, at least the story that was passed on to Julie angel, it's like, David and Jan almost had a fight in a thing. The first day, right? right? And then, and then what they did as friends was to be like, can you do this? I don't know. Can you do that? Like, let's, let's challenge each other. And, you know, if we go back to the idea of what is the hero's journey, the hero's journey is, is the place where you confront challenge. Mm. And, um, the thing that makes a person a hero in some sense is 
the choice to voluntarily confront things to undergo the process of transforming themselves. I'm wondering, I, I see, I see like I have neighbors and, and I, I don't want to like pigeonhole millennials, but I'm just wondering about, there are a lot of people yourself and the Amok and David yeah. and people who are on the right path who are like working on their heroic journey. But I'm not convinced that the majority of people are ever, are ever going to find that they're on a journey. Like it seems to me, I don't want to be like negative. I guess maybe I'm old enough to be negative that too many people are, have gotten it wrong and I've traveled like, and I don't think it's terrifically better in other places either. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're the the Western civilization, especially in America, we're like the darling child of how not to do your journey. Um, But I'm just wondering if you've um, like one man can't fix it. So you can have as many um, retreats as you want, but in terms of as you want, but it's not going to fix it. I'm wondering, is there something that our, the Western culture has lost? Like, was there a teaching? So like your, your learning journey was, was unique. I I think relatively unique, but the people who are 20 years younger than you and me aren't doing that now. So how do we get them back to, I mean, the people who are the same age as us, 99% of them didn't do it either. Right. Probably a good point. Right. Like (laughs) I, I don't think we should pigeonhole millennials on this millennials or Z generation or whatever it is. They may be suffering from this worse, but this is a perennial problem, right? Like uh, one of my big influences right now is uh, John Verveke. Uh, John Verveke is a cognitive scientist and psychologist from the University of Toronto, who I'm lucky enough to count as a friend now. He's been putting out a series of lectures called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Hmm. So you you touched on earlier the idea of, of the chess game and combinatorial explosion. So that's kind of at the center of the problem that we always face. So what what Verveke's argument is is that there's perennial problems that we have in 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 operating as human beings, and cultures. Part of what a culture offers yeah. is a set of psychotechnologies that, right? that allow you to overcome those perennial problems, and that's that's where wisdom develops. And what appears to be the problem is that for all our success in say cultivating intelligence as a culture, we've lost the psychotechnologies that give us wisdom. So I wanted to, to touch base on that idea of combinatorial explosion because it's very important in understanding the perennial problem and how we have failed to address that now. So there, we tend to think about problems as, as things that maybe have a very specific solution or we're really excited about, we talk about algorithms, right? Algorithms right. are everywhere right now. Right. Theoretically, an algorithm is anything that allows you to derive a perfect solution to a problem, right. right? But there's actually two classes of problems. One is what you could call a well-defined problem, which is one where you can search the entire problem space. Um, you can you can look at every possible solution and find one that is correct. Um, and then there's ill-defined problems that have problem spaces that are too large. So chess you have 30 potential moves per um, turn. on average per turn that are legal, and you have 60 turns on average per game, which means that the pathways that are available in a chess game are 30 to the 60, which is comparable to the number of atoms in the universe. That's not a search space that you can f- functionally search. It would take infinity for you to, right. to figure out all of the possible permutations of chess. So in those, we have to operate with heuristics, right? So a heuristic could be like control the, the center of the board, right? Um, get your queen out early, castle your king. Those are, those are heuristics. 
Okay. So the problem with heuristics is that the opposite, of, the, the same thing as a heuristic is a bias, right. right? Stereotypes are heuristics. As movement teachers, we face the problem that motor control is completely heuristic. There's no algorithmic solution to any physical problem that a human has because a human has a combinatorial explosive set of physical System. capacities. Yeah. I'm, in one of your episodes, maybe like four months ago, you were talking about how people, we have traditionally thought of the human body as a machine. Exactly. And yeah. then you can mechanistically combine these systems to produce perfect movement. Yep. And I, I, when, and when one says that, it's pretty clear. It's like, yeah, people, your humans are not machines. No. And, and that seems to fit into this, like, so on the physiological side of this problem, yeah, that's why more uh, holistic training methods produce better results because you're not trying to teach them. This is exactly how you do this. This is how you move in these environments. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if that's the case, if we're missing those tools in the more psychological aspect of it, I don't know whether to ask, what have we deleted or what, what tools are we missing? Or maybe what tools should we add in? Like, yeah. Kind of two yeah I'm, I want to expand on that and just sort of like lay out. Verveke's argument, but while we're on the subject of, of the body as a machine, I think that's, it's a really powerful example of how we fall into these heuristic biases and how they can mislead us. Mm -hmm. We are inherently symbolic thinkers, right? We think within metaphors. Like if you start drilling down into language, the vast majority of the things that we say are in some way um, metaphorical. So when we say that we understand something, we are standing under it, right? We, do you have an optimal grip on that? Right? right. You know, do you catch what I'm saying? Right. Right. All of those are physical metaphors, right? So we, we live within metaphors. And one thing that happens is we tend to utilize the metaphors of the most, the most advanced technology that we have at one time. So when, when we were really getting good at making clocks, right? We started to imagine the workings of the universe as a clock, right? And this was the origin of a determinist approach to metaphysics. Four years out the way, right? <laughs> now we live within the we live in a world where we have had extraordinary power and success through machines and computers, and so we conceive of ourselves as a machine that carries a computer around, and we're not the machine; we're the computer, right? And and that metaphor actually systematically misleads us. Um, movement practice is an extraordinarily powerful place to see that it misleads us. People who move like machines move poorly. Teachers who teach in a mechanical linear program oriented manner achieve poor results. We are not machines and our brains are not computers. So that's an example of this problem that we have. So what Reiki says is we're always, we're always fighting this battle between the heuristics that inform us, the very things that allow us to become adaptive in our environment. The, the only way that you and I can communicate is through having access to metaphor. Right. And yet the metaphors that we use consistently lead us to bias and the potential for bullshitting ourselves and engaging in self-deception. So what historically has happened is that cultures have built sets of what you might call psychotechnologies, this is the term that Verveke uses, as ways to intentionally cultivate wisdom, right? And so, you know, Vipassana meditation, meta-meditation, these are psychotechnologies, right? Lectio Divina is a psychotechnology of reading in a specific way. Church, like any religion, is a set of psychotechnologies. And these were where we went to achieve wisdom, um, and this is another thing that came out with my, my conversation with Verveke, but it's something that I, I really like, which is, you know, people are very, 
we have a big taboo around the subject of, of intelligence because so much of our culture is dependent on intelligence. It's so relevant to how well you succeed in life that it's very hard for anyone to be like, yeah, that guy's just clearly smarter, right? That's like, that's a scary thing to say. Nobody worries about saying that you're taller, right? Right. But maybe if we were all NBA players, like it would become taboo. Like the only way to win in life was to be a basketball player. Maybe it'd be taboo to talk about somebody's height. Yeah. It had to be right? six foot two to win, right? But if we think honestly about intelligence, you can see some people think faster. Some people provide solutions to problems faster than other people. But you can also recognize that the people who think faster often are, are not more moral and they're not wiser, right? You can, you can have an extraordinarily articulate, fast problem solving system that, re, that consistently outputs problems that don't work at all. Right. Solutions that don't work. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and we, we all know that this is a thing, right? Like, I mean, I, I don't want to get super political on this, but I think that like the whole sort of postmodern philosophical thing, there's some truth in it, but a lot of what it is, is it's a, it's a set of symbols that you can juggle around to make yourself sound really smart. And you can engage in extreme discussion, right? Cogitation, right. And showcase your brilliance, but you end up with outputs, right? And, you know, to use another analogy, math, you can invent a species of math that, that have nothing to do with reality and you can find internal consistency in them and, you know, write equation after equation that are beautiful. You can exercise your intelligence and you're achieving nothing that has reality. I mean, all of string theory might be this. I don't know for sure. I'm definitely not smart enough to understand physics, but (laughs) neither, neither am I at that level. Right. right? But that's, but that's, that is a potential thing. Like all of string theory might be playing with math that has no relationship to reality. So intelligence is, is important, right? Uh, Jordan Peterson, Jordan Peterson, uh, who's another one of my big influences. He says something I really like. He said, you know, we are smart enough. We know enough about, um, particle physics that we can build atomic weapons. But you could also say that we are so dumb about particle physics that we would build (laughs) atomic, (laughs) atomic weapons. (laughs) Right. And so that's the opposite of that. And so one thing that Ravaki said that I really liked is that rationality is the recursive of intelligence. It's intelligence applied to itself. And then wisdom is rationality applied to itself. Hmm. So you need to have systems that allow you to engage in some sort of metacognition where you look at, okay, um, you, I'm deriving problems, but am I solving the right problems and are my problems actually solutions, right? Or am I using my intelligence in a way? Like you could be running a motor and you know, accomplishing fill, nothing, you know, right? Exactly. You could be, you know, winning the Daytona 500 or you could be filling your, 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 uh, your garage with noxious fumes that will kill you, <laughs> right? The motor doesn't know the difference. difference. So we, we need these set of things and, Traditionally, we've tended, I, I think that to, to get this a little bit back towards what might be relevant to the movers well, is. I think it's yeah. all relevant. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think this is all relevant yeah, to the movers. Yeah. I started interviewing people with like movement specific yeah. questions and history specific yeah. questions. And these, these interviews where were, uh, I call it off in the weeds, which yeah. is where the roses grow. Off in the weeds are way more interesting. But yeah. sorry, I keep going. <laughs> yeah. So, so one thing that's happened in Western culture in particular has been a division of the mind and the body. Right. This is Descartes, cogito ergo sum. Um, and you know, I don't, I don't want to sort of like hit the dead horse of Descartes because he's brilliant in lots of ways. And there's, 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 he's much more than just that one idea, but that idea and 
you know, it precedes him in some ways is that, that what matters about a human being is what hits, sits in their head. And so we have, we have disembodied our cognition. And so when we think about how we cultivate wisdom, we've removed that from the body. But traditionally in other cultures, there's a recognition that, that, that wisdom traditions are often associated with physical traditions. So Taoist practices include Tajishuan, right? So you may have, um, Verveki practices Vipassana, which is uh, a form of meditation, right? It's a concentration meditation. Metta, which is a loving kindness contemplation. And Taji Shuang, which is a martial art. Um, that's like a, that's what you might call an ecology of practices, right? And all of these things fill themselves in, right? Or they, they, they work together. The, one of the, the really key insights of modern cognitive science is that the body, or is that cognition is embodied, Right. There's something called Fourier cognitive science. And I'm, uh, <laughs> going to sound less educated than I like, but I can only remember three of them. Um, <laughs> uh, so cognition is embodied. It's embedded. That is, so it's in your body and it's embedded in the environment, right? And it's enacted. It's through actions that we engage in cognition. Without those things, our whole cognitive system doesn't, can't actually operate. Um, I give this analogy in the talk that I give. The only reason that a, that a cup is a category that is meaningful to a human being is because it affords things that are relevant to us and our, to our action capabilities. Mm-hmm. So when we try to train a computer to recognize cups, it's incredibly hard because cups are actually extraordinarily diverse objects. Right. There's yeah. the, the essential aspects of a cup only exist. No holes. Yeah. It only exists in relevance. Except that to a one has being. one hole in it, right? Because there's a hole in the handle. So, yeah, like, yeah. how do you tell the, like, what I was getting at is how would exactly. you write the algorithm? You say, okay, does it doesn't have any holes. No. Oh, wait. Most cups, <laughs> especially ones for hot liquids, have yeah. a hole in the handle and then yeah. the computer gets lost in topology. Yeah. But a human being has no problem distinguishing the water glass from the coffee mug. Yeah. Because we have a motivational system. We have a, an emotion, right? Or a motivation. Yeah, which is thirst, right? (laughs) And then we have a physical capacity, which is grasping, Grasping. right? So this affords us grasping. It affords us filling with liquid and then drinking out of, and that's, that's what makes it a category that's meaningful to us. So almost all of our categories, and again, our whole way of thinking, it's actually built into a relationship with the body. Mm -hmm. So we can't cultivate the mind. We can't cultivate the emotions we can't optimize ourselves in these ways without, being embedded without and, embodying them. Right. Um, and then on the flip side, the body also is not sufficient, right? It's like you can have a wonderful body, a wonderful set of physical practices, and if you don't have a means to translate those qualities into the other areas of your life, that can be completely self-destructive, Right. I, one of the conversations that's had a huge impact on me is a conversation I had with a power lifter, AJ Roberts, AJ Roberts set the world record in the squat twice. And he was speaking at paleo effects. And he said, well, this was actually spoke, but I was talking to him and he said, as I prepared to break the world record in the squat, I hurt every day. I was angry every day, right? I had to drag myself out of bed, feeling horrible and get angry enough to motivate myself to go abuse myself in the gym. I think I was five foot nine. When he set the world record in the squat, he weighed 360 pounds, right? He had to eat so much that he had to poop all the time and it was painful every time, right? He was theoretically one of the fittest athletes in the world, but he got winded going upstairs. 
you know, it was torture for his girlfriend to be around him as he was going through this process. And so he breaks the world record and he doesn't feel anything. It was completely meaningless to him. And so he decided that he had to break the world record again. It was the only thing that he could think of was that, you know, clearly if the first time didn't mean anything, I just need to do it again. He invested so much of his identity and ego into that, that, that he couldn't see outside the trap that he created for himself. So he did it again. And again, it didn't mean anything to him. And then he decided that that wasn't the path. And that turns out to be something that happens to many elite athletes. They reach the pinnacle of their sport. They win the gold medal. And they find that all of that effort didn't result in a feeling that was deeply meaningful to them. So what are we after? Are we after gold medals? Are we after world records? Or are we after a process that derives something meaningful to us? So that was my, my kind of realization at some point was I had, I had found, fell in love with the practice of parkour, but I had felt like it, it needed something to be oriented towards. It needed to be going somewhere. And the only model that I had for it going somewhere was to treat it like a professional athlete. So I helped create the competitive circuit that now exists in, in parkour. I created some of the first parkour competitions here in uh, Seattle and I, I ran them and competed in them at the same time, which was extraordinarily stressful. I had a panic attack at the first time I tried to do it. Um, I tore my Achilles tendon and I competed in Ninja Warrior nine months later and just missed qualifying to go to Japan. And then I competed at, uh, at um, the Apex International that year. I competed at our competition and I did all right. Like I was, I think I was 11th at Apex, I was sixth at our competition, you know. Uh, and I felt like, okay, well, I just came back from Achilles tendon tear. I can, I can do this, you know. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna train myself to compete. And then I ran into this problem, which was that we were the only people who were trying to produce competitions that happened outdoors. So if I wanted to win any of the other competitions, I had to train indoors, but Hey, I hated being indoors. <laughs> like mm -hmm. the part of the attraction of parkour was that it united my love of physical practice with my love of being outside. And more than that, I loved being in nature. I didn't love being in the city. I loved being in trees and in rocks and in round water. And I had discovered volunteer park, which is this incredible place with these beautiful trees. And it was like, I can go and, and, train to compete to win and I'll have to go train in the gym or I can go to this place that derives this extraordinary feeling of meaning for me that I feel so happy. And that was, you know, what I ended up doing was going to, to that. Um, and then the, I, I came back and, and was really trying to compete at NAPC in 2013 and Justin Sweeney, who had become, who was one of my students who'd become a really successful competitive athlete. He, you know, he had been just kind of right behind me skill eyes before I tore my Achilles tendon and then he just surpassed me while I was injured. And so I was training really hard and we were, we were training together in the gym and I was starting to feel like I was catching up. I was starting to feel like I was, I was right there with him. And then like two weeks before, uh, an APC right at the end of a training session, I was really fatigued and I had this one route that I wasn't satisfied with and it ended with a wall run and I ran up the wall and my foot slipped out a little bit and I reached up and grabbed the top of the wall and my shoulder subluxated and I re-injured an old rotator cuff injury. So then I went to NAPC to compete anyways. I got taped up by a chiropractor. And um, there were two ways that you could finish one of the courses. One was to do this very tricky run along a couple of like small blocks attached to a wall to a to a to, to a, a bar. Oh, okay. And like 
a huge percent of the percent uh, athletes just couldn't do this. It just wasn't going to happen for them. And then the other one was to do a 16 foot calibre, which was like the longest, you know, yeah. right. The longest jump I'd ever done was like 14 feet. I'd been, I knew that the 16 foot calibre was possible and I'd been training for it in the gym and I was getting close to it. But when I was looking at it, I really felt like if I landed, my shoulder would pop out. Um, so I did the, I ran the qualification. I finished third in qualification and then, you know, I, I drilled the the little run around the wall over and over and over again, and I just couldn't get it. And I was like, oh, well, just this is it's not going to happen. So, so I ended up bowing out of the competition. I just didn't feel safe to do the things that I needed to do to succeed. And I kind of looked at the in the mirror, and I was like, I'm, I think uh, 2013, I would have been. Um, how old am I now? <laughs> I'm glad to see I'm the only person with that. Problem. I think I'm 30. I was 30, 31, something like that. 30. And I, um, yeah, I was 31 because I was born in 1982. And I was like, I could keep trying to compete and keep training to compete. Mm-hmm. Um, and I keep pushing myself and there's going to be a competition coming up and competition coming up. Um, and I'm going to burn out of this sport in three years. And I'm going to have injuries that I'm maybe going to be suffering from for the rest of my life. Right. That's the likelihood of that path. Or I can try to take care of myself and follow what's really meaningful to me and I can rebuild my body and become healthy. Uh, and then maybe I can get something out of this sport for the rest of my life. So that's what I did. And I, I, I don't remember when I ran into this, but I heard years ago someone say that it's in mountaineering, they say it's not what the man does to the mountain. It's what the mountain does to the man. And like, that was the key idea that started really generating around my practice. Like if parkour isn't about me jumping further or isn't about me winning a competition, it's about how it transforms me. Well, how do I make that work What's the as well as possible? version of that practice, right? What does that look like? What does that look like? I think part of the, um, advantage of hearing you talk about things in like one i don't want to say one long stream but like giving you like so when we record these interviews with guests part of what i'm doing a big part of what we're doing is creating a space where you can be seen in your best light so you can figuratively run and play with your topics and it's it's clear like i've listened to enough of your material that i know that you have a, a large overarching um concept for what you're talking about so you're clearly pulling out individual pieces and you're presenting them here to me in a, in an order that's intentional. And I, I understand how some guests feel that they're like, Oh my God, I've been just like talking and talking and talking. And it doesn't feel like an interview. And I'm, and my point is that no, having you unpack that with passion is like really critical because it gets people to understand who you are and where you're coming from and what your ideas mean to you, not just what your ideas are. The, the short, short answer is if you want to know what Rafe has to say, you should go read every um, anthropology book in the <laughs> library and then go play. And then like, like yeah. the, the journey is the point. But I think people need to see the result of the journey and then to actually hear a person tell some or all of their story for you to really understand why the journey was necessary. And I, I can't remember if we touched on this in the recording or in the previous discussion, but I think we were talking about the necessity of the journey that yeah. there, there isn't, there may be like a shortcut. Like maybe if I go through the woods in a really rambling wrong, you know, thing at the end, I can go stay to the left, you yeah. know, like a, that, that's a useful thing. And that's a very common theme in martial arts, find a good teacher and they'll show you the way, but they're not going to actually do the work for you. Um, so I'm thinking, I, I, I wanted to know, cause I, I love to find kind of takeaways, but I'd love to know if there's anything that you think people can do to help build 
those missing, um, and I forget the exact term, but the psycho, the psychotechnology, psychotechnology. And I'm wondering if there's anything that you can say to people like, okay, if what you're hearing makes you think, Hmm, I might be missing something. Where do you go? And like, um, I read a great story about how do you tear a barn down? Mm-hmm. And there's two ways to do it. One way is to get a sledgehammer and just like go whacking and, yeah. and you'll quickly get exhausted. Another way to do it is to get a crowbar and start peeling boards off one by one and you can go and go and go. But the problem is you need to figure out where to put the crowbar to peel off the first board. Once you get the first one off, then you get, you know, you really get mm-hmm. into it. And I'm just wondering about in that kind of thing, where do people put the crowbar to peel into the first um, piece of those technologies? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, maybe I'll answer that one later. Let me, let me go and here. As I said before, yeah, go good, wherever you want. Like, so <laughs> so what, I, what I wanted to say is this, um, I guess where I wanted to go next was once you make the realization that your movement practice exists to transform you as a human being, it's, it's kind of a big challenge because now you have to look at it very, very differently. Yes. Right now you're not asking, how do I get better at this jump? You're asking, does this jump get me, make me a better better. human? (laughs) Right. Can I get better at how that jump makes me a better human? Is jumping even the best tool for me at this stage of my life? Yes. And so what we've tried to do is again, taking that evolutionary frame that we have, like look at, look at the scope of practices that people could take on. And as I kind of mentioned in the beginning, Mm -hmm. there's an infinite set of of practices and I'm not claiming that the practices that we lay out are definitive or the only way to, to take this path to the mountain. But from an evolutionary perspective, I think that there is some, something really vital about developing a bodied embodied relationship with your environment, right? Become embedded in the environment and parkour is a process that does that. And I think there's something that has to happen with interacting with other human bodies. You need to to have competence in moving with another human being. You need to to have confidence in that. Um, You need to be able to manipulate things and move things around with your hands. Mm -hmm. And then you need to be able to take care of your body and make it healthy. And then the last piece that's kind of the, the, the one that we've installed last and the one that's been the hardest for me is mindfulness, right? I've been doing parkour for, for 14 years, I guess. And I think I've been meditating for almost as long, but like I do parkour usually like at least nine hours a week, right? That's probably my average is nine to 12 hours a week over the last 14 years. And, and I can measure my progress like, boom, I got better at it. It was good. And, and it's very enjoyable, right? It was enjoyable from the beginning, but meditation was like, I have no idea if this is helping me. (laughs) It's really hard to do. Right. Uh, you know, I'll do it for a few months and then stop for prolonged periods of time. And it was only very recently that, that it started to feel like a, a very specific evidence, right? I had, um, I have IBS and I did a meditation, uh, where, um, irritable bowel syndrome. Okay. So I, I did a meditation where I meditated on slowing down the peristalsis in my gut and it actually worked, right? I was able to vastly decrease my symptoms of IBS just through meditation. And I saw, see it starting to show up in, in who I am with my wife and who I am with my kids and who I am with, with the people around me. It's like my ability to, to be less reactive, to be more present, to, to be in a positive sum space with people. Particularly right now, I've been doing a lot of meta meditation, which is um, loving kindness meditation. How do I, so the, the, the mantra that I've been given it, that I, uh, that I learned uh, from my friend Marl Walsh is, um, may I be well, may I be at peace, may I love and be loved. And 
So you could just say that, but you have to actually try to embody it. Right. Right. So when I think about being well, I ask, what would it mean to me to be well today? Right. Right. You know, so like right now it's like, may I be full of energy, right? Like, can I get over some of the fatigue that I'm experiencing? You, by the way, you, when you started, you were like, I don't know how loud I am. You're like, you're you, not only you changed your entire body posture, you moved in, yeah. you're loud. I'm like, yeah. that's always what happened. But yeah, yes. good. So yeah. And then, you know, and then it's like, what, what does it mean to be at peace for me? Like when I think about love, like, can I be loving? It's like, well, what are examples that are real in my life? Like moments with, I have, you know, I have a two-year-old daughter right now, or almost two-year-old. So it's like that moment where she comes to say hi to me when she hasn't seen me in a while and right. she's just beaming. It's like, can I embody more of that for the people around me? Can I give them that sense of being deeply seen and deeply cared for? Um, and, and that, you know, you just see the impact that that has on people and you see that that's meaningful. So we, we do that. And, and so I've, I've come to identify within, within Evolve Move Play what I think of as three axes of practice that optimally allow you to use these sets of psychotechnologies to engage in positive self-transformation. And one axis is, is picking a set of practices, a scope of practices. Mm -hmm. right? So I, I kind of laid that out already, but there's a mindfulness practice, a body health and integrity practice, a body to environment practice, right? Parkour in nature for me, a body and object practices. So I play, I juggle and play yeah. ball games and I swing a stick. Right. Uh, mace instruments? Around. I, uh, I don't, but I'd like to. And that's a perfectly good example. The reason I ask is I have like this fetish to try and learn to play the guitar. Yeah. And I, I keep saying I need to make time. I need to make time. I have a guitar and I've like dabbled with it, but it, it takes dedication. I think it's something that really would, that type of interaction with the physical thing really helps. But Right. Yeah. And then there's, there's, um, um, body to body practices, right? And so we use basically my sort of derivation of concepts from contact improvisation, which is about learning to be creative and additive in relationship to somebody else. So how do we co-create something interesting? It's like a conversation physically. Mm -hmm. And how do we explore the space of how two bodies move together? And then that moves into the martial arts how do I confront what it's like to deal with conflict physically? How do I play with that? And how do I give myself a skill set that would allow me to deal with that when I need to? So that's kind of the main scope of practices that we look at. You could also look at practices of, well, we do actually, <laughs> but, but you could, you could look at the same scope and say something like, um, you could have communication practices and even community practices, right? So getting together and singing songs, right? That's a community practice. And that can be a very powerful, like incredibly powerful states of, of, um, self-transcendence and, right. and, and altered mindsets come out of that. So that you could look at this as like the scope of the practices. And then the next layer I look at is like, okay, well, if getting better at jumping makes me better as a human being, how do I do that better? And that's where we dig a lot into the, the research on motor learning. And we're really f big fans of the ecological dynamics approach to motor learning. Um, and so we are really trying to refine our model of how a human being learns and help people facilitate people learning in a way that is most sort of optimally in tune with human nature. And the last axis is how do we, so if we, there's the jump and how much we get better at that. And that has some correlation with how we change as a human being. But we want to make the, the correlation between our practice and our growth as a human being as tight as possible. And so we need to, we need to ask the question, how do I extract more self-growth out of my physical practices? And um, that's a question that's been kind of an open question for me. We've, we've had some implicit, I think, 
things that are starting to really generate and, and, and have a positive impact. But I couldn't articulate it the same way where I could say like, ah, oh, here's why natural parkour works well. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't say that, you know, um, here's why we use, you know, uh, less extrinsic feedback and try to, you know, attune people to intrinsic feedback and the motor learning stuff. But I recently got to work with my friend, Mark Walsh, who does something called embodied yoga principles. And he has a very good heuristic system for, for how you do this. And, um, it essentially is practice mindfulness within your movement. So it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, you do the jump. Um, were you, can you have mindfulness of what it was meaningful? Like before what's going on with you? Afterwards, what happened with you? And then even maybe during, during. It, can you be more present to what's happening? Right. One thing that happens a lot when people um, are beginning to learn parkour is that they'll actually go deep into a kind of fight or flight state when they're trying things that are at the edge of their ability. And they'll, they'll actually lose that. Right. So you'll do the jump and have no, and no, you, you no don't remember yeah. the jump didn't happen. Like it, it didn't even register. Um, and so we, we want to learn how to, to, to set ourselves in a state that we can actually get the experience. So mindfulness within movement. Next we have, um, familiarity, right? As emotions come up, as we experience the physical state of our body in our practice, um, is it familiar to us? And if it's familiar to us, then we can, or it's not familiar to us. We can ask, where is that showing up in my life? That's life linking, right? So, you know, I worked with one of my students recently and we were working on a wall flip and I could just see that he was in this deep state of anxiety, right? He was really afraid to do the wall flip and, you know, his posture is closed. He's got a little blush in his face, you know, his eyes are in a certain shape. And, um, and I, so I asked him like, you know, what's going on in your body? He's like, oh, I feel really anxious. And I was like, is there somewhere in your life that this shows up? Right. He's like, when I want to talk to a girl, Right. I was like, okay, so what I want you to do now is- New practice. Right. (laughs) What I want you to do now is remember the last time you asked a girl out and she said yes, right? How did you feel as you walked away? And you can just see his body completely relax. Shoulders get broad. Right. He's got this little satisfied smile on his face. I was like, hold on to that emotion. Now try the flip, right? Go when you know that you can hold that level of confidence through the flip. And the next flip, he flew right out of our hands. It was like two feet higher. Yeah. So that psycho-emotional component is incredibly powerful. So we have life linking, um, and then you have dialoguing, right? So then I had to have him meet up with one of the other students and just talk, what, did, what, did, what, did, what was your insight through that process? And then what we, um, that's what I got from Mark. And then there's an element to this of storytelling as well, I believe that we we exist within narratives. And when we learn to craft and think about our narratives and lay them out and use them, um, we have a more powerful way. And when we learn to connect them into our bodies, we have a more powerful means to create the self-transformation. So those are the, the three kind of systems or ways that we're looking mm-hmm. at self-transformation, the psychotechnology sets that we're working on to, uh, to, try to engage with self-transformation and there's lots of stuff that's out there that people could use that could also be powerful like i said i think um, if there, actually there's a i'm not trying to say don't give yeah. me that but there's a bunch of really useful hints that i think they're obvious that you laid out in there about ways to find the unknown unknown the ways to find things that you're weak at um but if, if you haven't lost your train of thought keep going <laughs> no, no no yeah it's fine i was just saying like you know you know uh, psychedelics absolutely are can have this kind of power it's not something i work with it's not something i've done mm-hmm. right um some people are highly motivated like 
big group experiences like Burning Man, right? right? That can be powerful for people. I also think it can be a trap. I think all these things can be a trap. I think you have to set up your system so that there's these ecologies where they can interplay with each other because they prevent you from falling into traps. Mm. If parkour is your only means of self of self-transcendence, the problem that you might have, and I see this with a lot of guys, right? They come into parkour, they're, they're a lot of guys who do parkour are kind of geeky, you know, kind of the nerdier kids. They're often physically smaller. So maybe they were very athletic, but they never got recognized for athleticism because um, yeah, they weren't like big top. enough to right. succeed in team sports. So all of a sudden they can realize that their body is strong and capable and that all this physical talent can be expressed somewhere. Um, and it's, it's revelatory for them and they feel so good. And they think, man, this is changing me. They can feel, they feel really changed. Um, but they actually aren't, it isn't showing up. And they spend all their, like, you know, like if you're working with like 15 year old to 20 year old men, like, you know, very often the most challenging thing for them is how to relate to women. Right. And very often you see these guys, they spend all their time with other boys. Right. <laughs> I wonder why. Right? <laughs> okay. And they still have no idea how to, to do it. It's like, the, you know, uh, they've, they've cultivated something, but they haven't figured out a way to translate it. And then what can happen is, okay, so, so parkour, you're good at that, but talking to girls, you're terrible at, or maybe your family life is really messed up and you have no ability to deal with, with what's going on over there. Or maybe your work life is messed up and parkour, rather than being a tool that you use to help build a capacity that you translate into those other places, right. It becomes the safety place that yeah, you go escape, so right? that you don't have to confront the stuff that really needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And that meditation is the same thing. People think meditation is like a panacea, but meditation Just can tool, absolutely right? be a trap, yeah. right? Um, it, it doesn't matter what it is. All of these things, when you make yourself of service to them instead of making them of service to you, and when you allow yourself to sort of be honed into one path without giving access to lots of tools, um, the likelihood that you're going to start um, bullshitting yourself and 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 deceiving yourself as you walk down that path becomes much higher, in my opinion. One opportunity here is I've heard I haven't listened. I'm like I'm five behind, but I've yeah. listened to all of your podcasts, awesome. and there are lots of places where. Well, first of all, sometimes it gets a little repetitive because in order for you to complete a train of thought, you have to like run the whole train of thought. And I can yeah. see you start on a train of thought and then you realize it's like, oh wait, now this is Rafe talking instead of the guest talking. Yeah. And I'm like, no, finish the train of thought. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is you know, intentionally one of the things yeah. I wanted to do here was to give you an opportunity to like finish the train of thought. Yeah, like, yeah. If, so if you talk for 20 minutes, I'm not like, okay, waiting cool. for you to shut up. I'm like, yeah. yes, here's your chance to yeah, like, yeah. open it up. Um, so now that I interrupted you. Sure. I'm going to tell you a story. I don't know if this goes cutting on for or anyways, but it, it was funny. No, it was a funny thing. That, I love stories. It was a funny thing that, that, um, that came up in something you said, which was this idea that like when you're listening to somebody, you want to, to hear the depth of their thinking. And this is something that, um, the Jordan Peterson said, if you want something, you, you need to find five reasons at least to like, to clarify why it's important that that's going to happen. And you should do that if you're making an argument with somebody, because most people just don't have five counter arguments, <laughs> but also if you're trying to convince yourself to do something. Right. And, uh, and so recently my daughter has been complaining all the time about Donald Trump and like Donald Trump, she's seven years old. <laughs> and it's like, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to defend Donald Trump, but I'm like, you shouldn't be caring yeah, about Donald Trump. Seven, yet. You're seven years old. It's like, like tell me a policy of Donald Trump's that you think is bad and tell me why you think it's bad. Right. And I'm like challenging. It's like, you can have an opinion about things as soon as you can do that, right? You can tell me how Donald Trump is the worst president ever. As soon as you can tell me what his policies are, 
and why they're bad right. and what the comparison is, mm-hmm. right? If you're just going to reflect the, the, the animus that is held by the people around you about somebody, right? Maybe in this case it's deserved, but that's how witch hunts start. Yes. And, and so I'm, 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 I'm challenging her. I'm saying you, I don't want you to go down this road of, of letting your emotions be, be run by other people's perception of something that you haven't studied yourself. So that was a story that popped into my head. That's a great story. I didn't even have to say, and I love to tell people, please share stories, but that's great. Um, So I'm just want to be mindful of your time today. The very last thing that I want to ask people, and since we're kind of doing this as a big open question, we'll just, I think we'll just leave this in. I always explain, usually intended for the cutting room floor. I usually explain that I ask at the end for three words to describe your practice. And in your case, unpacking practice, you won't, that won't make you stumble at all. You're like, I know exactly what I'd be thinking about. But I tell people that the three words can be anything you want. And it's intentionally a little challenging to find three. Although I think I know what three you're going to use. Um, and then you can, you can either just drop the words and then we'll be done or we can unpack them a little bit. So that's one of the things I want to end with. So when we're ready to go out the door, I'll ask you for that question. Yeah. Is there anything, let's, let's kind of flip this around. I often say to guests, is there anything else that I may not have asked you that you want to bring up, but we've kind of been doing that. Yeah, I don't yeah. mean that negatively. So <laughs> is there anything else that you would want to ask me that we haven't gotten to? Um, uh, there's, I'm, I was really interested in the conversation we were having beforehand and I can't quite, I can't quite remember what it was about. So there's like this thing. I, sometimes I do that and I, I always regret yeah. sitting down on a sofa and starting because I'm like, you know, what's going to happen yeah. because it's hard to recapture. And I'm, I agree yeah. to a hundred percent, but I also, I refuse. I will not route the guests yeah. right to yeah. the execution chair yeah. with the mic because yeah. it's just weird. Um, but there's always, yeah. you know, like we're in the same country, we can always continue. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, one of the things I guess that I'm, I think I've touched on it before, but I'm, I'm curious to hear your perspective about this because I know that you've had an opportunity to talk with a lot of the people who I have less connection to, right? The people at the origin of parkour. But what it feels like to me is the more that I've dived deeply into an EMP is that it is kind of like a reclamation of the original spirit of parkour, but I would hope with a more sophisticated, more articulated reasoning behind it mm. and set of tools to continue yeah, more forward. explicitly articulated mm-hmm. maybe because it seems to me that there is this you know you, you I, I talk about parkour as like sensu strictu and sensu latu right the mm-hmm. wide sense of parkour the narrow sense of parkour and then we can talk about parkour and add right i right. uh, do the pasmal but right there's maybe david's parkour and whatever he's defining it as and then there's the parkour that's widely practiced and then there's whatever the emergent thing was where ADD and parkour began and then as it slowly emerged into something. And I've had a conversation with Stefan Vugro about this. I've spoken with Tomas Kodik about it. That was a great interview, by the way. Thank you. Yeah. But that, but there, you know, and I've asked them, like, it seems like it has something to do with this heroic journey thing and that it's, and they've, they've both told me this really wasn't about the jumps in the beginning. It wasn't about a specific set of techniques. It was really about these young men who, who are actually came from pretty difficult situations, yes. right? And they could have easily gone down pretty negative roads in gangs and, you know, crime. And they, they found some way to give themselves a challenge that was positive that started that journey of tra- uh, self transcendence. And what became popular was the fact that they, they did it through jumping and that that hadn't the, really been explored. The visual part, that's why it yeah. blew up. And like it, it exploded in France and it's, it's a, I've been with, the, 
Yeah, they're they're actually still famous there, and it's yeah. like a thing. Like the 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 movie comes on TV occasionally, and like everybody watches it again. And yeah. like the first movie is really popular, and there's so. But the movie you mean the the first Yamakaze? Yeah, movie? right. The first Yamakaze movie that like well that kind of exploded the Yamak onto yeah, visibility. Yeah. Um, but even David's um, early like stunt, even yeah. uh, Speed Airman, like the yeah, very yeah. first one that he put out, even that it it makes David very famous, mm. and. I'm not sure I know where my train of thought was going. Um, I think that even they don't realize what they did. And in like, in some sense, like to, to Jan, for example, it's, he understands what he's accomplished, but he doesn't really, in my opinion, that he never said this to me, but he doesn't really realize the power that he wields. I think sure that I feel that if they, got together that they could really explain like like so here's what i'm thinking why are we talking about what they were doing in lease and every like mm-hmm. they should be talking about that yeah, they yeah. should be able to conv- they should be the teachers like in the sense of like here's what we did and either they did it intentionally or didn't do it intentionally but here was our journey and this is why that journey was valuable and i think i'm not 100 sure but i think that they do do that if you train with them so chow um once said specifically that like we're aware that there, there, this was before there was actually, and now there is an ADD coaching thing that they run themselves, the Yamak run. But at the time when it was being discussed, why isn't there? They were saying, because it's meant to be a peer-to-peer direct conveyance. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to like try and create a system and then have it pass along. And I don't know if that was a reticence of like, well, that doesn't seem to work so well for most martial arts. And then, and then the other side of me wants to do like the the anthropology thing of like, don't touch them like they're still alive you can i mean you can get on a plane you can get every in like 20 hours and yeah. and all you gotta do is wait around about 15 minutes and y'all go running by like i mean he's like <laughs> he's still there like i've i've chased him around for days on end and and we go running through the streets and people are like hey Jan, as he goes by like he he I, so i woke up in his apartment and i'm like the first day i'm thinking i wonder what we're going to train today when we go out and play and i'm trying to like you know first of all oh my god i'm in Jan's apartment right but the second thing was like, what's he going to do and he just he just lives it's just Jan's life he got yeah. up he grabbed his guitar he got in his car he went to the mall parked we cut through like the fast food restaurant who knew him and we took yeah. water out of the back of the soda machine and we went out the side door emergency exit and you're in every you go past laurent's grandmother's house and you have manpower's off to the left and you yeah. go to the cathedral and we just jump on shit for four hours. Yeah. There's, there's nothing to it. It's just the way they lived. And how the heck do you can, like, how would, if we say to these guys, wrap that up and explain it to us, how would they even do that? It's like, you need to go and train with them. Yeah. And that's why I think you're on the right. You, you're like, let's just go in the woods and train. Yeah. I mean, I know there's a lot of structure and organization, but, yeah. but the basic principle of like, okay, we have this space, let's go over here and train and, and, and do that. So I don't um i actually don't have the answers i mean i know you're not asking sure, me. Sure. i don't have the answers i don't know that even my perspective is unique i'm just like the crazy guy who travels around and points mics at people <laughs> um maybe in a few more years i would like to hope that maybe in a few more years i'll have enough to be able to like pull it all back together but at like this current point in my life i'm just crazy busy with like work and recording yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's so many things going on that as sometimes i feel particularly this time last year, I was like, okay, winter, I'll get a chance to really dig into all this stuff. And it's like, flew by. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I hope I'm not letting you down, but I don't no, know no, that it's, 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 you're welcome to keep yeah. asking me pointy questions yeah, and I'll try to get just interesting. the conversation we had kind of off, off, off. Yeah. Before, before mic, right? off mic. Yeah. 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 Um, was kind of around that. And it, so it's just an interesting topic for me. And, you know, one of the, the ways that I've conceptualized it that kind of touches on the ideas that we've been, jumping around on is 
noticed the analogy. <laughs> <laughs> we both like paused yeah, and went, yeah. we did um, it. So is the, the idea that you can conceptualize parkour as a, as a do or a jitsu, yeah. right? And this is, um, this is a terminology from Japanese martial arts. Um, and, and this is something that I wanted to touch base on because I, You've talked about your experience with Aikido, right. and I think that there's this which, is this which is, comes from Aiki Jujitsu is where yes, they, Aiki Jujitsu, right? Yeah. Um, so, for those of the audience who aren't familiar, Jitsu basically means technique, and Do means way. It's the same. It's the same word as Dao in Dao De Ching. So, so a, a Jitsu is basically like you know you you could have a, a Jitsu of being a fireman. Right. Like for, for a fireman doing a plunge isn't a necessarily a tool of self transformation. Right. By <laughs> plunge, I mean, actually, I mean, a, a muscle up is what we call it yeah. here. Right. And but so they, the, but for the fireman, they literally, the fire, so let's unpack that because that's yeah. actually not, not everybody knows that. So it, the, they call, um, uh, you have a board, a yeah. plank, which in yeah. French is planche, P L A N C H E, I think. And, they actually, the firemen actually yeah. need to hang from the plank by your fingers, like a dead hang for a climb up and then climb up onto the plank. So the way the Yamak teach a climb up, like Chow specifically teaches this and people in the States go, what are you doing? They'll be on a brick wall with a lead with an upper top. And he will teach you how to put your forearms on the wall mm. and to roll your forearms forward. I'm not saying this is pleasant. Yeah. Roll your forearms forward <laughs> so you can get your chest up on top. And it's like this yeah. twisting motion that is actually doable. Yeah. And you look at it and you go, why don't you just put your feet on the wall and yeah. do what we all call a climb up yeah. in like Western Hemisphere? And the answer is because it's a planche. There's a plank. There's nothing for your legs. You have to roll onto that board. Yeah. So, sorry. It's a funny thing about that. Just getting off on a tangent. We'll come back to the Dow thing, but um, uh, you know, the climb up is a huge like scale in parkour, right? It's so kind of archetypal and such a such a point of focus. When I went into training in nature, I realized that it almost never, never occurs happens. because it's it's a skill that only exists when you have or that an artificial wall where with you, a top, exactly you have you a ninety degree a wall with a ninety degree ledge. So in um in you know, if you look at rock climbers, right? When they they have mantles, mantling is when you get when you go over the top of a rock. Um, but a mantle might look just like a climb up in some circumstances, but a lot of the times it's like throw your elbow up, throw a heel. hand up in a weird yeah. pose, throw a heel a cup. And it's the same thing when we climb trees. So you know we do a variety of different climb ups, but um, you know when it's like most of the climb ups are either much easier. Than a climb up or much harder. <laughs> like, yeah, mantling is. Yeah. I've done a little rock climbing, and mantling is often like this is really hard. Yeah, and so in the parkour community, a lot of times you'll hear you never use your elbows, right? Never use your elbows. But like, so I'll be running up a tree, and I'll have a tree limb, and I'll have the trunk. And if I can grab the tree limb and and the, and it's a nice grip for my hands, then it's like a really easy climb up, but just weird and asymmetrical, or like the it'll be in a really weird position and I won't be able to get good power with my legs and I'll have to throw an elbow up and a mm -hmm. heel hook up and like struggle up in some interesting way. It's like the, that uh, Yamak original idea of being able to use the elbows is actually very functional. And I mean, all the rock climbers do it. Yeah. So, so that's an interesting thing about how we've, we've lost some information. And another thing about that is that the, the Yamakazi actually trained in nature a lot yes. in the beginning. That's something that's forgotten. People think of parkour. I've heard people, 
hundreds of times say parkour is urban obstacle coursing yeah. or even like, they say it started in the urban environment I'm yeah like, i've been to lease yeah. i've like i've been to where these guys live. So and, it's, and, yeah. Blue. and then williams was leading he's like all right we're going to train today and we ran out into the woods out in yeah. at least there's parks and, and well i can do to keep the guy in sight let alone do yeah. anything that he did but like they still train outdoors in um in a rural it's not rural like you're in the suburbs of paris yeah. if you run far enough you're running the housing in town but um but it is organic it's trees it's grass it's and by organic i don't i meant like uh found i didn't yeah, yeah. necessarily plant-based sure yeah yeah so i've uh, trained in you know in in the woods in sarcelles and you know in, i haven't in been to yeah, but I, you know on one hand i'm like i want to go on the other hand i'm like it's just the woods yeah <laughs> there's woods I mean, there's trees outside the window i don't know if the neighbor would like that fontainebleau but. is very worth visiting right all the it's funny i don't think they tra- i'm not sure how much they trained in fontainebleau until pretty late in the game but like all the videos that show them doing it in nature or a lot of the videos Coming that show the nature are Fontainebleau because Fontainebleau is fantastic. I mean, it's, it's where bouldering was born, yeah. which is like 20 minutes from where parkour was born, which is a funny little point of history. But Dao, you know, we want to go back to Dao yeah, versus Jiu-Jitsu. Dao versus Jiu-Jitsu, right? So you could look at um, any of the skills in parkour and you could, you know, well, not any of them, right? Like, but most, many of the basic fundamental skills in parkour anyways could be something that you train a soldier, right? Could be something that you train, um, you know, uh, a fireman. And for them, it's just a thing that they need to do their job. Right. And all the martial arts started like that, right? For the most part, the Japanese martial arts started as things that you train samurai so that they can kill people on the battlefield. Right. And the idea that they were self-transformational wasn't really there. Yeah, then and there's then, even, I always love the, the one, jujutsu, which is J-I-U in front of jutsu, is yeah. empty hand. So that's like when you've dropped your sword, which is yep. a really bad thing. But when you don't yeah. have a sword, now what do you do? Well, you fight Crap. with the empty hand techniques. Yep. And so it's just, it's just jutsu to them. Yep. So then, you know, historically, basically, there was a point at which all these samurai skills became functionally yeah, irrelevant. And then people wanted to maintain them. And what they discovered was that there was a sense of self-transformation that came through the practices of them. And so we had this change from jujitsu to judo. We had aikido, uh, aikijutsu to, to aikido. Right? aikido. Um, though there's a big difference because aikido is much more focused on a do, whereas yes. uh, judo has become a sport. But you could also look at the same thing in the chi- uh, Chinese martial arts and you know, Tai Chi, the internal martial arts are, are basically very aligned with Taoism. They are, they are, they are part of a set of psychotechnologies of self-transformation. So I think that, you know, when we received parkour in some sense outside of France, what we perceived was a set of techniques. I remember, you know, like them being basically like written out on urban free flow. It's like, you need to learn how to do a speed <laughs> vault, a Kong, uh, uh, right. uh, speed vault, monkey vault, mm. King Kong vault, right. you know, uh, dash vault, reverse vault, palm spin, et cetera, et cetera. And I, re- I remember in my training when I, when I had learned all of them, I was like, well, what's next? What's next? Yes. Right. What's next? And I, I, I'm just, I'm at this vision. Like, um, Jan tends to just say pass. So when he's teaching a class, he'll he'll find an obstacle or a part of a route and he'll just be like, pass, 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 which which in French means yeah. like go over or yeah, like yeah. go beyond. Mm-hmm. And so he's just basically telling you like pass. Go. And but and people will run up to the object and they'd be like, Well, well do you want like a step fault or a and I'm <laughs> chuckling because he has very good English, but he's not gonna give you an answer. I'd be like, Well, use a step fault, put your hand. He's yeah. like, pass, go over the thing, yeah. pass, pass, pass. And I that's why I think that for them it's clearly a, a way. It's a dough, yeah. but 
the when you take a picture of it or when you download the video from your modem or when you want to type it up on a message board that that's a lot of typing to explain yeah. dough and yeah exactly especially when you have a language bad gap and the guys who originated it were were not highly educated right right so so this this thing that it that that it was for them. And then I think a lot of people, like there was the idea of parkour philosophy. Like, I remember all these arguments about parkour philosophy on yeah, the early there days. There were arguments on them. By the way, I wasn't around for the yeah. early days, but my understanding is like all it was was discussions. I don't know that anybody was like, guys, you're all missing. Here's the philosophy that I got when I trained with them. It was like them trying to reverse engineer the philosophy yeah. out of, which is a good point. Can't like, I'm going to see reverse engineer the philosophy out of Tai Chi by learning the physical movements. Yeah. Well, ima- imagine like this, like, so, you know, usually the guys who are discussing this were mostly English speakers or Russians speaking English or something, right? Like, there wasn't a lot of the guys who were French. There were some of them, like uh, Thomas Kodich, uh spoke in these, uh, in these forums occasionally. But, you know, for the most part, it was, imagine like going to China, like having a Chinese guy who speaks a few words of English teach you a few sessions of Tai Chi without any explicit instruction and then going back to England and trying to explain what the philosophy of Tai Chi was. Right. Like, that's what was happening on these forums. So, you know, I think fundamentally, a lot of it comes down to that idea of, of this positive confrontation with, with challenge and how that can transform you, your character. Um, and I think that, that that's what's interesting to me, is how do we, how do we make parkour uh, a dough again in a really... Um, and, and make it as profound and powerful as possible. Maybe I, I kind of want to say, how do I, and not like a, not that I want to correct you, but yeah. like I want to say, how do I make my parkour into a dough to, to sort of remind myself that the problem is actually what I'm doing. Not that there's necessarily, I'm not implying something's yeah. wrong with parkour. I'm saying I'm beginning to realize that what I think of as parkour may not be the whole pie. So how yeah. do I make my parkour be a dough? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's, that's totally fine. Like I don't, I'm not advocating that everyone has to treat it this way, right? Like, you know, I've, I've played around a lot with defining parkour, right? Like when I was the head coach of parkour visions, you know, I felt like we had to have a clear working definition of parkour in order to, to know what we were trying to teach people. And so I originally defined it as, you know, the, the discipline of developing the self or or not the self, the discipline of developing the ability to overcome obstacles effectively. Right. That was the best understanding that I could kind of glean from what David had said, you know, through pawa.ru or whatever. And then, you know, over time I added in this, this, this secondary clause, which was end of developing the self through overcoming obstacles. And then when I spoke to Stefan, you know, I was like, I got that backwards, didn't I? It was the discipline of developing the self through overcoming obstacles, right? right? And all, everything else was secondary. And so I think of that as like maybe close to, you know, like, I guess you could say, you know, there's different, there's different definitions. Maybe David's definition is more like the first, or I don't know, maybe the, 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 the Amok vision was more like what I was talking about there. And then, uh, and then I think that the, like, if you think about parkour in the sense of what describes the, the practice that is universal to everyone who now ascribes to the name, right. Or almost everyone. Right. And fundamentally it's just like, People who interact, it's, it's a, it's a practice of interacting creatively with physical obstacles. Environment, right? Yeah. With, <laughs> like, with complex environments. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what it's come to mean. And it's, 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 it's interesting to me though, because it seems like that, that practice, just that first hint 
of go out and play around on some obstacles. Even in the loosest sense, it seems like it invites something. And this is, this is what I wanted to get into because we, we were talking about, about this as like, is there something special about parkour? Mm-hmm. Right? I think, I think, you know, you talk to most people who practice most things and they're going to be like, Oh yeah, no, this is the best is at the- doing, <laughs> delivering this. So I think we have to be really like, we have to be really skeptical of our claims in this regard. Yeah. Like I read a book called the rise of Superman, which is about, um, it's about flow states and how, Athletes in snowboarding, skiing, surfing, et cetera, are experiencing this profound transformations and able to attain skills and what that says about flow state and why flow state's important for self-transformation. And I was like, man, parkour needs to be in this. And, and I recognize that there's a real commonality. Like if you can conceptualize confronting a vault or a jump as, as the hero's journey, Mm -hmm. the same thing's true for confronting a wave or, you know, a run through a, a terrain park or, you know, mountain biking down a hill. Like, and I distinguish this from, from like martial arts because the, the flow sports, there's no, um, handicapping, right? Like the, the terrain exists as it is and you have to know for real whether you are capable of it. And if you take it to a high level, if you lie to yourself, you will get badly hurt, right? In, in martial arts, you never get to train the real thing, right? You know, there's, there's crazy people who, who, you know, Steve Morris, you know, Eric Paulson, who've been like, well, okay, I'm going to put my stuff to real. I'm going to go put myself in situations where street flights are likely to happen. And, you know, you can argue that that's not an ethical thing to do. That's why I wouldn't personally choose to do it. Maybe I'm a scaredy cat, but um, mostly I think it's just because like, I don't feel like hurting people to test whether my theories are true is a, is a worthy cost benefit analysis. Right. right? But, but most people, almost everyone who trains martial arts, the closest that they get to reality is competing in the tournament, in tournament, in sport. And sport is not, is not the full reality. And so there's, there's a, and, and another thing about that that's interesting is that, when you do parkour or when you do skiing or when you do snowboarding, um, if you can tap into flow, the environment's not fighting you to tap you out of flow, right? You can get the perfect linking and stay in that flow state and get that accelerated learning, that incredible mm-hmm. growth of skill through that flow state, through the whole experience. But in martial arts, my job is to prevent you from getting to the flow state and your job mm-hmm. is to prevent me from getting to the flow state, <laughs> right? which has its own lessons that are really valuable. And I think you want to be playing in both of these fields if you want the optimal growth, right? It's like, I want to go to the place where I can, I can get into my flow and stay in my flow. And I want to get into the place where someone's going to challenge my flow and I'm going to have to re-articulate it over and over and over again. But it seems like there is something different between those two and the lessons that you get out of them. Now, is there something unique about parkour relative to skiing, right? If, if we're going to argue for parkour as this potentially, Panacea, right? <laughs> you know, uh, amazing thing about, uh, for self-transformation, what makes it unique from the rest of the flow sports? And for me, it does seem like it is somewhat unique. Like, I think that you can derive a lot of the benefits that we would argue from parkour for many of those sports. But my argument for why there's something unique about it is that it's the set of movements that human bodies were built for. Right. Right. And it, it, it moves at a slightly different pace, right? It's, it's slower. 
right? On our skis, you can go 70 miles an hour. Yeah. And parkour, if you hit 20, you're really, yeah. really good. Yeah, I would say, you know, in this analysis we're doing here, I would disqualify any sport that requires equipment. So, like, yeah. all of track and field is pretty much out, except for the running competitions. And then those, I think, are out because they're disqualified because they have a very limited range. Like, the motion is very limited. So, there aren't many things that are as free form. They don't have the environmental information right. right so if we look at what well, they talk about the the triggers of flow in um the rise of superman and uh things that force you to deep embodiment yeah. where you have rich environmental constraints where you have high consequences right um those are the individual triggers of flow there might be um i i haven't read the bars like focus yeah. right um and and those those things obviously are present in surfing snowboarding parkour um and, and everything like it but, you know, and this is why I train in nature, because it's a richer environment as far as I'm concerned, right? Like, if if there's richer environments than, like, running around in the trees, it's, like, white, wet, or kayaking, and like, right. thing, right? Like, that's, that's the only place where you could go where something that's more, like, more stuff, right. more stuff that you have to process. And those things are very attractive to me. Um, but, but I think there's something really profound about that and that idea of, um, you know, if, if our cognition is inherently embodied and embedded and enacted – where are the places we go that allow us to deepen our connection and our awareness and our mapping of the body right. that allow us to improve our embedding within the environment and that allow us to act out the, the, the things that we need to act out to grow as human beings. And that's where I think that, that parkour in particular, you know, parkour in nature for me has this profound power, um, that is not entirely unique and that is shared by many other things that I, th but I, th that I think is maybe the most powerful instance of this because it, it aligns on the most different, different you know, features, yeah. features mm -hmm. that, that are, that are, that can deliver this. Um, that's my argument for why I think there's, there's something somewhat unique about it. And I think that it, it well, one thing that's interesting to me about this is if going back to the like Jitsu versus Do thing, it seems to me that, when you when you talk to a surfer and you ask why do you surf, they'll never tell you. I just need to hit a bigger wave, <laughs> right? right? Right. If you talk to a chuchitero, they're not going to be like, okay, give me, you know, well, duh, like fifty two chokes is just way cooler than fifty one right? chokes, right? <laughs> like that's not how they talk, right? It's always because it transforms your character. They transcend when they're after yeah. the transcendence. It's out after transcendence. So, but here's here's where it gets weird because some arts approach transcendence indirectly. They approach transcendence indirectly um, through, through the, 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 just the, the, pra the practice. But then there's always the potential that it's a trap or the potential that you're just not getting the correlation, right? And you fall in love. You always fall in love with your practices. Right. And so it's hard to be like, man, you know, yoga is probably delivering the benefits I want in my life better than surfing right now, mm. but I just like surfing. So screw yoga. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm all in on surfing yeah. and all this stuff. I've been yeah. doing it so long and I'm good at it. Yeah. There's also something to be said for being good at it. Oh yeah. We have ego traps. Yeah. Um, so you have the indirect route and then you have the direct route. You have the people who said, okay, well really the reason we do martial arts is to, to approach self-transcendence. And that's like, that's Aikido, and that's uh, and that's uh, well, I mean, Tai Chi Chuan. Ditch martial right. arts and head for right. the Buddhist meditation, in, in yeah, the, yeah. you know, in exactly. But what I've noticed is that a lot of the arts that have directly said, like, like we're actually about yeah. character formation, they end up being full of bullshit, right? Because 
they they neglect the ground substance, hmm. right? Like there are there are great Taiji Shuan teachers, but there's a lot of teachers who will tell you that you're learning something that's relevant to self defense, and you're learning the farthest from that. Right. And the same thing for Aikido, right? Yeah. Fights don't far, uh, don't, don't start don't. from 10 feet <laughs> yeah. away with someone swinging their <laughs> arm like a right. stick at your head. Right. <laughs> it's just not how it happens. So I, I see parkour as this like potential, like place in which, or, you know, evolve move play as this potential place in which we start to bring those two things together. Par- parkour as a medium, it gives you a, a fundamental real challenge that you can say that you can't lie to yourself about. You can, you can go in and teach your students to fall down for you. Right. And you can lie to yourself every day about how nobody could uh, touch you. Right. You can't lie to yourself that you can jump 30 feet. (laughs) Yeah. You either can or can't balance on this rail. You get to test yourself against reality. And you know, this is, um, this is an, this is a really interesting insight to me is, Flow states, one of the, um, actually one of the triggers of flow states that we didn't mention is clear coupling of feedback to action. The faster that you get relevant feedback from an action that you make, the more tightly you go into flow state, right? That's also what like optimizes business function. Like mm-hmm. Nassim Taleb in his work talks about the idea that you have to set yourself up to the potential for lots of small failures to prevent large failures. Like businesses grow when they can see where they make errors. And then Philip Tetlock talks about the same thing in um, in his book, um, Super Forecasting, right? The people who are best at forecasting the future are the ones who make who, who make clear predictions that can be disconfirmed, look for disconfirmatory evidence, and update their predictions as often as possible. So again, it's that clarity of feedback. So um, so in martial arts, you can go to a place where there's no clarity of feedback. And even if you're, even if you're in the real martial arts, it can still happen. It's, it's still, man, it's still hard. It's really you, hard. You have another mind involved. So it's yeah. not entirely possible for me to know for sure what the other person is really thinking and how they've been mentally, I was going to say trained, but yeah. mentally trained. When I'm, when I'm sparring with somebody, I think that's why people, why a lot of people who are into martial arts wind up being interested in, in mixed martial arts and taking yeah, martial arts to yeah. competition. And people look at that and they go, Oh my God, it's like brutal. And, you yeah. know, like they, they see it as a really bad thing. But I, I've never done any of that. But I think so, it has to be at least some of the people who are drawn to that, like drawn to actually go MMA fight. I think those people are maybe doing the, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the path of the dough. And yeah. I need to, this is where I need to go to find out whether what I was doing is true. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's that feedback that you need to, to prevent yourself from falling into the heuristic bias that leads to bullshitting right. yourself. Mm-hmm. And so it's very interesting to me that the arts that have chosen to focus on self-transcendence have gotten into this parasitic processing and bullshitting themselves thing. Right. And then the arts that have this indirect thing, they, they offer their own value, but they haven't been able to to capture the whole value. And so it seems to me, you know, that using the, the body and environment practice as the center of the practice has a potential to unify those two things, to get the reality that you get in MMA with the self-cultivation you get in Tai Chi, right? We can find both without having to sacrifice one of the principles and uh, and that's very exciting to me. And I, you know, um, take it with a grain of salt. But uh, but that that I think is is 
is why it continues to be at the center of what we do, right? I train martial art, you know, I train kickboxing and grappling skills with my students all the time. We do stick stuff and we do ball stuff and, you know, we do Qigong sets to deal with that and we meditate. Um, but we spend more of our time jumping and vaulting and climbing because there's something about it that seems to have this particular power that's interesting to me. Maybe it's just because I like it best. I think, uh, again, being mindful of your time, I think that's a good place to wrap up there. Maybe we'll think of this more of as a first conversation, whether on mic or not. Um, I'm sure I will see you again at some point. Um, So I think I would just ask the final question, which would be three words to describe your practice. (laughs) Well, the obvious ones would be evolve, right? So, yeah, move and play, right? Terrific, Rafe. It was a pleasure to finally get a chance to sit down and talk to you. And uh, I look forward to talking to you again. Sounds good. This was episode 66. For more information, go to moversmindset.com slash 66. There's more to the Movers Mindset Project than just this podcast. Visit our website for more free content, to join our email list, or to read about how you can support this project. And I'll leave you with a final thought from the Dalai Lama. If you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Thanks for listening.